Episode 74, Space Debris and Sustainable Use of Space. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. Space, as the author Douglas Adams once said, is big, really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. However, after six decades of launching spacecraft, some orbits are now congested with space debris from collisions and poor end-of-life mission management. This has now become a serious hazard and even a danger to operational spacecraft. With plans to launch thousands of additional satellites, the mega constellations in the coming decade, the need for some sort of traffic management in orbit has never been greater. The Secure World Foundation was established in 2002. Its vision of a sustainable and peaceful uses of outer space, contributing to global stability and benefits on Earth, is timely. In the last decade, the urgency to address the profound impact of climate change here on Earth has finally been well, almost heeded. The next decade will focus on space. The Secure World Foundation is informing and leading this debate. Dr. Brian Whedon is the Director of Program Planning for the Secure World Foundation. In the past, his responsibilities included intercontinental ballistic missile operations. He worked at NORAD, Cheyenne Mountain, and Vandenberg Air Force Base. He specializes in space situational awareness for the U.S. Air Force and Strategic Command's Joint Space Operations Center. In this episode, he talks about the key issues of space debris, militarization of space, raising awareness of cyber threats to spacecraft, and helping to develop the policies and standards for commercial uses of space. I started by asking Brian about the origins of the Secure World Foundation, its objectives, and what's involved in his role as the Director of Planning. Well, we are a relatively small uh, US-based nonprofit organization. Um, We came about in the mid-2000s. Um, and I joined the organization uh, in early 2009. And the main focus of the organization is on space sustainability. Um, the idea that uh, outer space is a pretty special place to be. Um, and we need to be able to look at how we can continue to sustainably use space for all the great things we use today and what's coming down the pipeline in the future. Um, as those activities grow across increased commercial, military, uh, 
uh, and civil activities. Uh, and in addition to how we can use space capabilities to help improve life here on Earth. So it's not just about what we do in space, but also how that benefits us here. And you said it's small. I know from your website you have uh, so much. Uh, I've certainly benefited from so much uh, in the way I've downloaded. You produce um, white papers, fact sheets, brochures, uh, and indeed ebooks. And you don't charge for any of them. <laughs> so, how many people are there, and, and how do you fund yourself? Well, I think we're finally up to about 12 people, uh, and they're split across our two offices, which our uh, headquarters is in Broomfield, Colorado, uh, and I work in our Washington, D.C. office. Um, our, our primary source of funding is philanthropy. Uh, there's a couple in Colorado, uh, Marcel and Cinda Collins-Arsenault, um, and you know, throughout our history, uh, they have provided nearly all of our funding as part of their personal philanthropy because they care deeply about the kind of issues that we work on um, and, and trying to you know, improve life here on Earth. Um, so so that's, you know, that, that's kind of been where, we, where we've been for the last few years. Um, and you asked about kind of my role with the organization. Um, as director of program planning, it's my job to kind of help put together the plan of projects and the budget for each year. Uh, and that's a process that, you know, we're, going to be getting started in the next couple of months for the following year. Um, it involves kind of pulling together ideas from all the different other program managers and figuring out kind of what are the hot topics, what are the trends, what are the things you want to focus on, and then culminating in kind of the, the full-on budget and slate of, slate of projects for the following year. Given the early days of the space race and the Apollo era, we've got the International Space Station pretty much firmly started in the commercial era. A few more years, and we'll be seeing these huge constellations of satellites providing all sorts of services from private sector. Um, if there was any time that an organization like the Secure World Foundation was <laughs> required, it's about now, particularly with all the political tensions. Do you see that uh, timing as being somewhat critical right now? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we, we kind of pride ourselves on not being on the bleeding edge, but kind of being a little bit ahead of the curve. You know, we started talking about the importance of space sustainability as of back in around 2009, uh, and that turned out to be pretty fortuitous. Uh, 2010, the uh, Obama administration rolled out a new national space policy for the U.S., and for the first time, they specifically talked about the need to uh, maintain space as a safe, sustainable, and stable environment for all the various things we use it for, civil space, commercial space, and security space. And, and as you mentioned, you know, there are trends underway that are making it a lot more challenging. Um, we're seeing rapid growth in commercial space. Uh, billions and billions of new private sector investment is flowing into space companies. All these new startups are out there doing crazy new things, which have a huge amount of promise. Um, as you alluded to, there are something on the order of 10,000 new satellites that are on the drawing board to be perhaps launched in the next several years. Now, not all those are going to happen, but even if some of only a few of them do, um, that's still going to be several uh, multiples more of satellites than we currently have in orbit now. Uh, and at the same time, more countries are looking at space for military and national security purposes. Uh, and so that combined with kind of the, the global trends in geopolitics here on Earth makes it 
perhaps more likely that there's going to be potential conflict in space in the future. Um, so all of that, yes, does make it more challenging. Uh, and also, but I also think it reinforces this need for why space sustainability is such an important issue. There's many topics I'd like, I'd like to talk to you about, but I'm going to <laughs> discipline myself and stick to the key space <laughs> situation awareness. But if I may just ask you about one thing, um, about the politics in, 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 in America. I've noticed uh, recently um, the National Space Council, which President Bush set up about two decades ago, it only lasted a few years, your current uh, president, President Trump, he has reinstated that. And I seem to feel that, that's a good thing, and that's the feel that I get from uh, various other people. Is that how you see it in the, in, in the U.S.? Um, I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing, I, I'm, I'm, but I'm, it's unclear how much good it's actually done. Uh, I mean, it certainly, I think, elevated some of these to a broader attention among the media and public, but it's not like we didn't have an interagency coordination mechanism before this. Uh, in fact, my, my, my doctoral work was exactly on that. It was how we did coordination on space policy decisions across the government in the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations, um, which were the three administrations since the, the Space Council was sort of disbanded. Uh -huh. um, and surprise, surprise, we managed to find a way to make decisions. The, the primary effect of the Space Council has been to sort of elevate those to a little bit higher public attention um, and, and political attention because the members of the Space Council are cabinet officials, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, Secretary of Transportation, and so on and so forth. So I think that has had a benefit in getting it more attention. Whether or not it's actually been useful to make better decisions, I think that remains to be seen. That's interesting insight. Thank you very much for sharing that. I'll move on to another uh, interest of mine, and this is particularly of interest to me because on that uh, dreadful day of 9-11, uh, as you call it, in, in uh, September 2001, um, I was in the UK and I uh, watched the horror of that incident unfold. It's very incredulous even now to me. But on that day, you were working uh, as an ICBM launch officer in Montana. So you were on duty. Um, I'm just wondering how you saw how that day unfolded for you. Well, I mean, in some ways it was very much like everyone else, but different than a couple others. So yes, at the time, um, I was a, a young uh, U.S. Air Force officer, um, and my job at the time was launch officer for um, nuclear-tipped ICBMs. And that morning, I, along with, you know, 49 of, sorry, actually more than that, um, of my other uh, young lieutenants and captains were all scheduled to go on nuclear alert. Uh, traditionally, you'd go out and spend 24 hours with a crew partner underground in a control capsule and, you know, overseeing uh, a bunch of nuclear-tipped ICBMs. And that's mostly a very uneventful job, thankfully. Well, that morning, of course, was eventful. Um, you know, the, I think the way that it was not different from anyone else was that once we got out there, finally, um, we spent much of the rest of the day, the next couple of days, we actually ended up spending four days out there instead of just one, uh, watching the news and, and we were struggling to try and figure out what had happened and who had done it and why 
just like the rest of the world. Um, the biggest change, of course, um, was that you know we were part of the military, um, and the U.S. military was mobilizing to try and a you know defend itself. Should this be kind of just a prelude to something bigger, um, and also perhaps respond to whoever had attacked us? Um, and at the time, you know that included increasing readiness of the nuclear forces. So we actually went uh, increased our readiness levels to a, a level that we had not seen since the Cuban Missile Crisis, not because you know there was a plan to go ahead and, and, and launch nuclear weapons at, at whoever had done this, but because our readiness was tied to readiness of all the other conventional forces um, that did need to get increased, you know, off tempo and, and get ready for something. Um, so that was rather interesting. Happy to report that since then they've they've sort of fixed that and, and now you know they can increase readiness of conventional troops uh, and planes and, and and ships without having to also increase readiness for the nuclear forces, uh, which is a, a good thing in my mind. And, and that's another fascinating thing about your your career, uh, having had that uh, military background. You now in the Secure World Foundation, which is an organization, as you said. Um, tasked with uh, informing and promoting peaceful uses of space. But I think that's quite a useful and uh, interesting background that allows you to bring a lot of that experience to this new role. Uh, is that how you see it? Uh, yes. And, and, you know, those two things are not necessarily compatible. Hmm. I mean, the, 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 the Outer Space Treaty, which, you know, kind of solidifies that notion of of space for peaceful purposes, uh, the United States had strong national security interests in pushing that. In fact, peaceful uses was actually a term the United States came up. Uh -huh. um, and and the, the goal was, at the time, space was, was, was being used for strategic intelligence and reconnaissance of the Soviet Union. Uh, and that was extremely important to the United States. And so they wanted to try and make sure that they could do that using satellites uh, without having to worry about those satellites being attacked. Uh, and so that was, that was you know, kind of the primary motivation uh, for that notion of peaceful uses. Uh, and even today, you know, if you talk to the military leaders, even with the increased rhetoric about potential conflict, war in space, and Russia and China, um, they will say that their primary goal is to deter and avoid conflict in space because they know as the single biggest users of space, if that happens, that's going to be very bad. Very bad for everyone uh, on the planet. A absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I know you've uh, done presentations all over the, the world, really, but also in, in the U.S., including the Pentagon, which I also worked in the U.S. in the Strategic Command Joint Space Operations Center as an orbital analyst where you develop training and programs for improving space situational awareness. And that's the theme that I would like to really focus on. So what exactly is space situational awareness or SSA? Well, it's a, you know, yeah, it's sort of a, it is a sort of interesting piece of jargon. <laughs> uh, but it, basically what it is is knowledge about the space environment and human activities there. That's sort of the simplest way to put it. Hmm. And, and so, yes, after I had that job in the nuclear world, my next assignment was in Colorado Springs, 
uh, working inside Shining Mountain, where NORAD is located. Uh, and for the Air Force unit that was primarily responsible for tracking a lot of the satellites and space debris that are in orbit around the Earth. Um, and so as an orbital analyst, it was mainly about pulling in data from you know, a, a global network of radars and telescopes um, and keeping that catalog of space objects updated uh, and then using that data to figure out, you know, things like are satellites maneuvering, are they coming in to re-enter, tracking new launches, looking at breakups. Uh, and that's both to support a safety mission, uh, but also the national security mission to look for threats to space objects. Um, and then that eventually morphed into the, the JSPOC, uh, which moved out to, to Vandenberg uh, right about the time I left the job. Hmm. Now, most people, when they talk about uh, SSA, they tend to refer primarily to space debris. And for people who are not familiar with um, the space sector, this is a very big problem. Can you just summarize the problem of space debris as it is today? Sure. Um, I'll just have my point on you're exactly right. That is part of SSA, but not all of it. So SSA is not only tracking stuff in space, which includes the large amount of space debris, but also the space environment, things like space weather, that can have an impact mm -hmm. on where the, how those things move around in orbit, um, and then also kind of the active satellites. So as far as space debris, at the moment, there's roughly 1,700, 1,800 functional satellites in orbit around the Earth, and that number changes because they're always launching new satellites and old satellites are, are, are dying. But there's something on the order of 22,000 or so pieces of space debris that's also floating around, um, and that's just counting the ones bigger than 10 centimeters or so. Uh, if you want to go down to one centimeter in size, estimates are half a million, three quarters of a million objects that are all floating around in orbit um, in addition to those active satellites. So a big part of the job for SSA is figuring out what the orbital trajectories are for all that stuff, um, and then doing forward-looking predictions to see is it is any of that space debris going to come close to any of those active satellites? And if so, how do you warn the satellite operators, and then what do they do about that? And that's, that's sort of one of the biggest issues in space today, um, because that space debris is gen tends to be concentrated in the orbits that are the most heavily used, um, and, and so poses a threat to a lot of operational satellites. And of course, if a satellite you know, that weighs several tons gets hit by a piece of space debris, well now you have seven, several tons of new space debris in orbit that can go off and go hit other things. You give me some fascinating numbers, about approximately 1,800 operational satellites right now, which are, I guess, big enough and the operating communications with their, their operators so we know exactly where they are. How are the smaller 10 centimeters and above, and indeed those half a million or three quarters of a million smaller part, uh, particles in space, how were they detected? How do we know that's how many there are? Well, as I alluded to before, it's primarily through ground-based telescopes and radars. Right. Um, the U.S. military uh, at the moment operates its own network of these, um, and they're either, you know, in the case of the radars, they're beaming radio energy up into space and some of it bounces off this objects that are going around and comes back down and 
you can do the math then to figure out, okay, something's located here at this point in time. Um, and if you can get multiple of those kinds of measurements, you can then calculate an orbit for the object. And if you get even more, and you also understand, uh, you know, the density of the Earth's atmosphere and other kinds of variables, you can then predict where that might be in the future. Um, and something similar with optical telescopes. So you take an observation, it would say, hey, I saw a point of light at this point in space. Uh, and then this time, get multiple of those together, uh-huh. and you can create a trajectory. Right. So uh, presumably the optical telescopes are used debris objects which are very small or very far away, particularly within geosynchronous orbits, uh, would be using an optical telescope to detect. Yes. Um, tr- typically, radars are used for objects in low Earth orbit, let's say up to usually a couple thousand kilometers. Um, and the advantage there is you can get a radar, particularly a phase array radar, with a fairly wide uh, sort of field of view, if you want to think of it that way. And they can sometimes track multiple objects at the same time, which is quite useful because there tend to be a lot more objects lower down in lower altitudes. Um, but, you know, geosynchronous orbit, as you said, was, that's 36,000 kilometers away. It takes a heck of a lot of power <laughs> to throw a radio a radar signal that far out, although there are a few that can do that. But typically it's more uh, efficient to use an optical telescope to track things out further out. Now, of course, the challenge then is you you then have to be, your telescope has to be in darkness and the object has to be illuminated in order to be able to track it, uh, which is why you need to have generally a network of this stuff scattered across the globe so that you can kind of have good lighting conditions and have to deal with clouds and all those sorts of things. As an aside, I was interested by an announcement from NASA. I think it was late last year. They were able to detect the now non-operational Indian satellite Chandrayaan-1 orbiting the moon, which hasn't been operational for almost a decade. Um, The Indian Space Research Organization had uh, predicted that it would have crashed on the moon a long time ago. But no, this new uh, radar system from NASA was able to locate it in lunar orbit. It's amazing. Yes, and, and so I think the interesting wrinkle is everything I've just been talking about primarily is thinking about tracking stuff in Earth orbit. That, that's, the, that's the mission of the U.S. military when they do this. But, as you just pointed out, SSA is not just about Earth orbit, but we also have you know, dozens of spacecraft in orbit around the Moon, um, also around Mars, and that's going to grow as more and more countries start launching their own probes and their own missions. Um, and so there's also this need for sort of, you know, solar system-wide SSA, uh, because some of the similar challenges we have to face in the Earth also apply to the Moon and Mars. Uh, I've actually talked to people at NASA who deal with, you know, lunar orbiting objects, and they have to do their own conjunction assessments, um, believe it or not, because, you know, there are sometimes those objects orbiting on the Moon or Mars uh, might come really close to each other. Hmm. That's fascinating. I hadn't actually considered the... Uh space debris problem around other planets but of course you're absolutely right that's a concern as well i'll just add it's it's actually quite a concern around the moon because of course the moon has no atmosphere um and is a much smaller body so there's a much smaller volume that they can inhabit and there's no natural decay mechanism that would pull space debris out of lunar orbit uh, like there is on earth 
And that's exactly what uh, the Indian Space Research Organization had uh, banked on. So whatever models there were then, they were obviously inaccurate. So coming back to Earth, <laughs> so to speak, ah. the, um, you mentioned that the majority of the debris is around uh, low Earth orbit, which is up to technically up to about 2,000 uh, 2, kilometers. And most of the debris is concentrated on the popular orbits, like the sun-synchronous polar orbit, which is around about 800 kilometers. So if you want to launch a satellite to geosynchronous orbit, 36,000 kilometers, you then have to go through this cloud of debris, potentially. So this database of information, which is providing the um, air traffic control, I guess, uh, is, um, is that um, managed totally and only by the U.S. military? Well, there, I would say that the U.S. military has, um, for the moment, sort of the most well-known and probably the most complete catalog, but by far not the only one. In fact, they actually have multiple catalogs themselves. Um, there are other countries, Russia, uh, the European Union, um, or sorry, European Space Agency, um, and, and you know, China are also working. They also have their own capabilities, building their own catalogs. Uh, and even today, there's you know a half dozen or more commercial companies that are out there rolling out their own telescopes and radars and building commercial catalogs. Um, so, you know, the U.S. Is, I said, is probably the most well-known, uh, but is not by near by any stretch of the the only ones. Uh, and in fact, if you were you know a betting person, the commercial <laughs> capabilities. Um, are probably going to surpass theirs in the next few years. And that, like has happened in every other sector of space, right? Communications, remote sensing, you know, once once there's a profit motive and once you get this sort of private sector innovation happening, mm -hmm. uh, that tends to out, eventually outpace the government side uh, innovation. Um, just to, to follow up with something you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, even though there is quite a bit of space debris, let's not forget that space itself is huge. Mm -hmm. It's it's vast, you know. Uh, if you do a comparison of the volume of the oceans in the atmosphere to the volume of space from, you know, 100 kilometers out the geo, oh, it's something like several thousand times bigger at least. Uh, so it is. It's not. And there's a, there's a, a U.S. Uh, Pixar movie called Wall-E from several years ago oh, yeah. that had an image of him leaving the earth on a rocket and kind of, there's this cloud of space <laughs> debris out had to go through. That is not what we're, what we have to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, if you're launching the geo, um, the, the risks of hitting something is vanishingly small. What might be a consideration if you launch into a parking orbit in low earth orbit, uh -huh. then you might have to worry about, you know, making sure that that parking orbit, uh, is not going to come close to anything else. Uh, but the biggest challenge we have in that calculation right now is the uncertainties because we don't know what the actual state vector is going to be at burnout for your satellite. We can guess based on the planned trajectory and, and the planned performance of the booster. We don't actually know until it's actually at burnout. And then you could do the prediction where it's going to be for the next several hours. Um, so that's actually quite a challenging mathematical problem uh, because of all these variables you don't know anything about. Uh, and then the question becomes, if you even do that, you have such massive error bars, is it even worth doing? Today, there are many new players uh, in the space field, spacecraft, 
to launch into space quite regularly now, either from different parts of the world or certainly for different clients. So it's getting really busy up there and it's going to get busier. Is the space surveillance network activity that's been conducted by numerous countries, is that integrated uh, or is it primarily the U.S. that's taking the lead? Uh, it's primarily the U.S. Um, and, and that's, I think, for a few different reasons. One, because historically they've been the ones that had most of the capability. Um, and two, they've been the most willing to share it. In 2009, uh, there was an incident where a U.S. commercial communications Iridium satellite ran into a dead Russian military satellite, uh, and that created a few thousand pieces of space debris. And, and, and in the wake of that, the U.S. put in place a new policy where the U.S. military would now start doing this collision avoidance, sorry, not collision avoidance, uh, conjunction assessment, basically predicting close approaches mm -hmm. for everyone. Oh, right. And, and that was partly altruism, um, in that they realize they're the ones that have the data. Collisions in space that create debris are bad for everybody, including the U.S. military. So they saw that as a way to help avoid future collisions. Uh, but there was also an element in there of if we provide this as a service, then that might get everyone to use our own capabilities instead of developing their own. And there were concerns that if you know other countries develop their own SSA capabilities, the U.S. couldn't control that. Um, and they might see, you know, secret U.S. satellites in orbit, and that would be a problem. So there were multiple factors there. Um, and, and today, the U.S. generally is the one providing a lot of this information. But an increasing number of countries are also developing their own national capabilities. Uh, the U.K., France, Russia, China, uh, Japan, Korea, many others are all out there actively looking at, you know, what kind of capabilities do we need to have as a country? Probably not, you know, replicating this whole geographically dispersed network, but at least can we come up with our own sort of independent stuff that we can use to spot check or even contribute to the broader um, international pool of data? Uh, that, that's a conversation underway. Uh, and then that leads to the, the kind of question you'd asked is, is there any kind of international coordination of this? And the answer is for now, no. Um, it's mainly countries that are doing it on their own, and then they may have some bilateral agreements or maybe even multilateral agreements to share that with the countries. But I think we are headed towards a place where at some point in the relatively near future, there is going to be more of a systemized way to share that data and pool it because there is going to be an increased need to do so. That's really fascinating. I wasn't aware that uh, it was the um, Iridium Cosmos collision in 2009 that initiated this new policy in the US. It reminds me of the Korean flight back in 1983, I think it's flight yes. 007. KL7, yes. And that triggered uh, the Clinton administration, I think it was eventually, that made the American GPS available globally for free. Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, <laughs> so when that happened, um, the Reagan administration uh, at the time used that incident to kind of get some good PR uh, and, and then went off and basically said the world, promised the world they would make the American GPS satellite navigation system um, available for civil aviation. Uh -huh. uh, 
and, and so that had already kind of been thought of. Um, it, so it wasn't that they that they radically changed their policies, um, but they probably more more. But they definitely brought them forward a little bit, and as I said, you know, used it as a PR moment. And it wasn't until 1996 when the Clinton administration decided that uh, they would actually end uh, the policy of what's known as select availability, which was this random error put on the civil signal. Um, and their decision to end that was mainly because it made it less useful for things like air traffic management. Um, and so, yes, and, and that was eventually turned off uh, for good in 2000. If you look at the modern world where all of us with a smartphone have a GPS receiver, it's just uh, a century away in terms of what was available to private individuals not, not so long ago. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's sort of uh, what I find fascinating about it is then when, when that decision on GPS was made in 1996, you know, it was rolled out with no, no really fanfare. Uh -huh. uh, in fact, if you go back and look, you know, the White House communications director the day, or the communications off the day before barely even mentioned it in kind of the roundup of, you know, news coming out the next day. Yet that policy decision, as you point out, has had a massive impact on our daily lives, probably more so than any other I can actually think of. Certainly seems to be uh, some of the things I used to see in sci-fi as a child are, are actually coming true in, in my real life today. <laughs> well, that's because, of course, sci-fi then inspires people to go out and actually do all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Um, so, I know you have an interest in uh, cybersecurity as well, and we here in the UK received, I think it was yesterday, uh, although it was released on the day before, technical alert that uh, was uh, jointly issued by the FBI, Homeland Security, and the NCSC, the National Cyber Security Center here in the UK, about cyber security threats. And I was just wondering if you ever, do you ever worry that um, things, looking at the politics of the world down here might cause problems to space debris up there? Uh, yeah, no, that, that, that's definitely a significant concern of ours. Um, I mean, on one hand, you know, the, the, the 2017 ASAT test created uh, about 3,000 pieces of debris, which is the same order of magnitude as the Iridium Cosmos collision. So it's not just the hostile, aggressive things that can create bad things. Accidents would be pretty bad too, uh, but yes, you know, particularly given the the, the recent um, changes in geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and Russia, and the U.S. and China, um, and other you know kind of geopolitical hotspots around the world, I think there is much more concern about that. Just uh, earlier this week, uh, we rolled out a new report on uh, uh, global counterterrorist capabilities where we uh, used open source information to try and assess what kinds of um, technologies are be, being developed in multiple countries to interfere with or attack satellites mm -hmm. um, and space systems. And we looked across the US, Russia, China, um, India, Iran, and North Korea in our original one, and they included both things like you know, direct descent weapon, kinetic kill weapons, um, lasers, electronic warfare, and jamming, and cyber. Uh, and, you know, the bad news is that there's a lot more of those capabilities being developed now than there was kind of at any point uh, since, you know, probably the, 
the height of the Cold War. Um, the good news is, is that to date, uh, there's been no operational use of destructive anti-satellite capabilities. What we are seeing heavily used um, are non-destructive capabilities like cyber attacks or particularly jamming electronic warfare, uh, which are going on all the time during military operations. So the question is, you know, in future military conflicts, particularly if they happen between powers, um, are we going to see increased attacks on satellites being as being part of that conflict here on Earth? And is that going to include kinetic attacks as well as non-kinetic? Um, that's a big concern and something we're definitely focused on. Yes, I'll reference that uh publication. It's not one that I've finished reading, but it's a fascinating read. Thank you for reminding me about that. And no problem. It, it's quite quite in-depth. I think we, we topped out in somewhere around 450 footnotes. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit dense. <laughs> one of the um, attempts to address this space debris problem uh, has been the United Nations Interagency Debris Coordination Committee. Now, they have established some guidelines for all space agencies around the world which uh, are voluntary in essence, but these guidelines help uh, them design uh, mitigations uh, into the space missions at the outset, at the design phase. Uh, so things like uh, staging, getting rid of any excess fuel, making sure their radio communication, uh, radio transmissions are switched off. So it makes it not only safe as a space vehicle at, when it comes to end of life, but also de-orbit if, uh, if possible. Now, this, these guidelines came in quite recently. To your knowledge, are space agencies around the world following them? Um, yes, uh, in general. Um, so, you know, the IADC was actually, is actually a collection of space agencies. Oh. Uh, it was co-founded by NASA and Roscosmos and ESA and several of the major ones. And, and now nearly all the space agencies are part of that. Um, and it was sort of created to take national level technical guidelines for diversification um, and turn them into international guidelines. Uh, and they published uh, their final document in 2007. Uh, and then uh, about a year later, it was endorsed by the United Nations. Um, and, and since then, there's been quite a bit of focus on how to implement them because these guidelines are just that, they're voluntary guidelines, mm -hmm. uh, but countries are encouraged to incorporate them into national level licensing and policies. Uh, and I would say in general that that is happening. Um, we are seeing an increasing trend of more and more countries putting them in place. Uh, here in the United States, um, it's national policy that, uh, that the U.S. debris mitigation standards, which are very, very similar to what's in the IADC guidelines, um, will be followed for all governmental missions and also be enforced through all the licensing of all U.S. commercial space missions. Uh, and, you know, so, so that's in place in, you know, France, Germany, Japan, China, Canada, Russia, many other countries are starting to do this. Mm -hmm. The challenge is that things in space last kind of a long time. <laughs> um, so there are plenty of satellites on orbit that were either launched or designed before these guidelines came into place. And so we're, 
you know, we're not quite at the point where everything's falling then because there's a lot of stuff that was grandfathered up there before they were even conceived of. So the European Space Agency has started tracking this in the last few years, and they estimate something on the order of 50-60% of the missions up there that are currently ending are in compliance with the guidelines. The most important guideline, which is the so-called 25-year rule. And that says that, you know, after the end of life, you shouldn't be in orbit, you shouldn't leave anything in orbit longer than 25 years, or at least shouldn't leave it in an active orbit. Mm -hmm. And so compliance with that is around 50-60%. Oh. It's not great. Again, we're still work, kind of working through the backlog of things that were put up there before the guidance came into place. Is that guidance, uh, is that compliance about 50-60% true for both LEO and GEO? It's GEO is quite uh, important. Yeah, it's stuff. roughly true. Um, so so the, the numbers are actually a little bit different. Uh -huh. um, I, I think they're 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 a little bit better in geo than they are in Leo, um, <laughs> yeah. but not not hugely better. The um, uh, this increase that we're expecting in the next decade or so, particularly with these mega constellations from the likes of SpaceX and OneWeb and uh, Boeing, and, and these are primarily satellites that are going to be providing um, broadband services. I guess five G from space, which is going to be another transformative uh, uh, act. Uh, but that's going to be a huge increase in the quantity of uh, uh, spacecraft up there. Does that, has the Secure World Foundation got a view on how to deal with this dramatic increase, which is potentially up to 10 times the number of operational satellites that are up there right now? Um, we're, we're working on something related to it. Um, one of the things we're working on is getting together with those companies and others to talk about industry best practices and and sort of norms of behavior um, for how industry can take steps to, to kind of mitigate that. And to their credit, a lot of these companies companies have been very willing to engage in that dialogue. Uh, in fact, OneWeb uh, has publicly stated that they plan to deorbit their stuff within five years. Um, instead of the 25 years, uh, which is the the the, the mitigation standard we talked about earlier, um, and and they're also taking other steps um, to try and mitigate that because I think they realize that if they don't, um, they're basically screwing up their own business model, <laughs> yeah. right? And that they're going to make it harder and more expensive to do the thing that's going to earn them money. So yes, they, I think that they have an incentive there. So so we, we are involved in, in several discussions among industry and the private sector on the issue of kind of best practices. We're also actively engaged with the U.S. government, uh, which is going through an exercise to modernize the way it does licensing and oversight of uh, the commercial sector. Um, and, and part of that is to kind of you know bring regulations from the Cold War era to the modern era to make it easier and faster to, to kind of go through the process um, and ease some of the, the national restrictions, uh, but also to look at what sort of oversight needs to be put in place for these new activities that are coming along. Mm -hmm. And that includes things like mega constellations and CubeSats, uh, but also things like satellite servicing or inspections or even asteroid mining, um, all of which kind of, you know, are, were not things that were thought of when the current licensing regime was put in place. Mm. 
It's uh, going to be an interesting uh, decade, as uh, every decade. Has been. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, the uh, five-year deorbit plans that OneWeb has, and I just mentioned this uh, publication that I came across on your website uh, last year, uh, the Handbook for New Actors in Space, and Greg Weiler from OneWeb has a terrific piece on that, which was, uh, I learned a lot from that. That's fascinating. You're quite right. It's in everybody's interest who uses space to keep space operational and have these uh, processes in place. Can I just ask, um, what kind of response did you have when you published the Handbook for New Space Actors? Oh, I think we've got a big, fantastic response. Um, I, we actually unveiled it um, at the Scientific and Technical uh, Subcommittee of the UN Committee on Outer Space Affairs, uh, sorry, UN Committee on Peace of Outer Space, UN Copios. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we handed out, uh, there were 87 countries as part of that, yeah. and I brought 100 copies with me, and I probably could have handed out 200 or 300. Yeah. Uh, some of the delegations wanted more than one. Uh, we, we've actually had a, a pretty great response to it. And, you know, our goal with that was to put together something that would kind of be used as the welcome to the club guide for all the countries that are getting involved in the space and all the startup companies as a way to, you know, here, read this. This will get you up to speed on kind of the basics of how to be a responsible actor. Uh, what's been interesting is we've also heard from some pretty well-established countries and companies that have been around for decades who said, you know, we spent our, all our time doing this one aspect of space, but we didn't even really pay attention to other aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the book was so comprehensive, they learned something about maybe frequency coordination or, or debris or something else that was kind of outside of their job bucket. Um, so I think today we've handed out about 2,800 of them. Um, and we've also, you know, have available on Amazon if you want, wouldn't want to buy a copy of it. Uh, and so we're, and we're looking at sort of a follow-on program to it. Uh, we're thinking about, you know, ways you might be able to turn it into an electronic web uh, resource, uh, a series of webinars, or some sort of online course, um, various ways to kind of further complement the kind of information presented in it. So far, we've been talking about uh, the existing tools to detect space debris and manage the uh, space vehicles out there uh, using the space surveillance network. Not many people, and I certainly don't know much too much about it, but space fence. Space fence is uh, going to be a new mechanism to monitor what's up there. Can you just describe what space fence is all about? Sure. Um, and it's confusing because there's more than one. <laughs> so the the U.S. Navy built sort of the original space fence, uh, which was a network of radar transmitters and receivers that went across the southern United States. Um, and it's called a fence because they basically broadcasted radio waves directly upwards into space uh-huh. um, to create sort of a wall of energy. And then as objects in orbit kind of went through that wall, it would reflect down um, – Echoes, and then you could use that to kind of detect things. That was shut down several years ago. So that was eventually transferred to the U.S. Air Force, um, and they shut it down several years ago as a cost-saving measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, they're building a new space fence, mm-hmm. which is nothing like the old space fence, but they kind of call it by the same name. Right. Um, the major difference is the new one is, for the moment, a single transmitter and a single receiver. 
that's located on Kwajalein Atoll, which is in the middle of the Pacific near the equator. Um, and it's going to operate in the S-band, which is uh, a much uh, higher frequency, um, and so they're going to be able to track much smaller objects down to probably a few centimeters. Quite expensive. It's on the order of a billion dollars or so. Um, and I think it's expected to come online toward the end of this year. Um, the good news is, is that when it does become operational, uh, they're going to be able to track quite a bit of the objects smaller than 10 centimeters that we know are up there, mm -hmm. but are currently not tracking. And so they anticipate that it'll probably be tracking a couple hundred thousand new objects that we, you know, hadn't been tracking before. So uh, traditionally, uh, radar works in sort of pulses, and you, um, I guess you send out these pulses and receive the signals, and it'd be uh, an intermittent activity. But with Space Fence, the new version, is it something that's always on? Uh, no, actually. Uh, so, the, so the old Navy Space Fence was ah. a continuous wave radar. Uh -huh. um, this new one is not going to be, uh, it, but you can think of it kind of like your TV, where if the refresh rate is high enough, you really can't tell. Uh -huh. Right. right. Um, sorry. At least the old school TV. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so yeah, the, the, this new one, it's it's an electronic um, phased array, and it is going to be pulsed, but the pulse rate is pretty high to the point where, you know, it's probably going to have the same effect of a continuous wave. And it's going to be just all covering uh, the part of the sky that can be seen from the location you mentioned uh, near the Marshall Island? Well, yes. I mean, it's uh, and, that, and that's sort of the case of all of these fixed ground assets. Is, right. You know, they can only see what comes overhead of them. Um, but the good news is, is that this is low enough to the equator uh -huh. um, such that pretty much everything eventually passes over it uh, that's in low Earth orbit. So, yes, you know, an object may pass over it and may not pass over it again for hours or days, but eventually everything will pass over it, at least it's stuff in lower orbit. And then finally, Brian, if I can ask you, um, can you highlight some of the uh, specific events for the Secure World Foundation uh, coming up this year and any other publications in the pipeline? Well, I mean, uh, quite a bit of what we do and we have planned are sort of uh, more of the facilitated discussions on a small group level. Um, most of those are sort of invite only, but I can give you a sense of, of some of the topics that we're working on. Mm -hmm. um, one of the big ones uh, has to do with satellite servicing standards. Um, we are working with DARPA on a project that they call CONFERS. Um, and the purpose of CONFERS is to create a consortium of companies to, that can then go off and develop standards for satellite rendezvous and proximity operations and satellite servicing. And so we're one of a couple different organizations that are under contract with DARPA to get the consortium started. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, that's occupying quite a bit of our time at the moment. Um, and so we're talking with companies around the world that are involved in this sector uh, and creating this, this, this entity. Uh, and then throughout the course of the rest of this year, we're gonna have a few different workshops they're going to bring together experts from these companies to start talking about an initial standard for how to do rendezvous and proximity operations in a safe manner. Um, and we hope to have that uh, initial standard done by the end of the year. 
Um, we are going to, as part of that, have um, a conference uh, talking about satellite service and what's going on in that world probably in November, but we haven't quite uh, set a date for that yet. We're also, as I mentioned, working on several different initiatives on the order on the subject of uh, industry best practices. Um, we're going to be doing uh, side events at the uh, small satellite conference in Logan, Utah in August. We have another side event at the AMOS uh, Space Situation Awareness Conference in Maui uh, in September. And those are going to be mostly focused on the link between you know, small satellites, responsible behavior and best practices, or SSA, and how that can help, and what the links are with that and RPO. Um, so I think that's, those are probably the big ones uh, that are relevant to the, the stuff we were talking about. Certainly keep yourself busy. Uh, if, <laughs> that we do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you mentioned that there are quite a few locations there, but they're all sort of um, in the U.S. Do you have uh, or do you participate or indeed hold events here in the U.K.? Oh, uh, we um, we definitely keep uh, our uh, travel planners quite busy. Uh, <laughs> I think there's maybe only a couple weeks out of the year that all of us are actually in the U.S. Most of us are actually elsewhere. Um, yes, I'm actually going to be speaking at the military SSA conference in London in uh, next week oh. um, uh, about some of the things we talked about today. Um, and then I'm going to be back there. I'm going to be in Exeter uh, for an invite-only workshop in August to talk about um, law of armed conflict and how that might apply to conflict in space. Uh, and then, you know, broader into the UK or sorry, into Europe, uh, we're there multiple times throughout the year. The next big one is going to be at the International Astronautical Congress, which is going to be in Bremen, Germany, the first week of October. Uh, there will be several of us there presenting papers and, and perhaps even a couple of side events. I hope I'm not keeping you too far uh, away from your lunch. I really appreciate your time. And uh, can I thank you and all your colleagues for the uh, really important and critical work that you guys do at a time when it's so necessary, unfortunately. Dr. Brian Whedon from the Secure World Foundation, thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure.